0: Good afternoon. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the insider briefing call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you should need assistance during the call, please press star zero on your telephone keypad, and an operator will come back to assist you. Thank you. Elise Schumann, you may begin your conference.
1: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone, or perhaps good morning to some of you and welcome to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute's Monthly Insider Briefing Call for March 2016. I'm Elise Schumann and I'm the Co-Chair of the Workplace Policy Institute. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, has been extremely active recently, from the proposed changes to the EEO1 report, to the recent announcement that the agency would be, for the first time, file lawsuits asserting claims of sex discrimination under Title VII based on alleged adverse actions taken against employees because of their sexual orientation, the EEOC seems to be sprinting to get as much done as possible before the end of the current administration. To help us make sense of these developments and give us an idea of what to expect during the last year of this administration, we're joined today by my colleague, Barry Hartstein. Barry Hartstein is a shareholder in Littler's Chicago office and also co chair of the EEO and Diversity Practice Group. Barry has extensive litigation experience with particular expertise in dealing with the EEOC. Barry, thank you for joining us today.
0: My pleasure.
1: And my first question for you is We have seen a flurry of activity at the EEOC in recent months. From your perspective, what is going on?
0: Well, you know, I guess first of all, I would say, in terms of looking at the big picture, I'd probably encourage all of you to take a look at the annual report uh, that we put together, which really not only capsulizes what happened over the past year, but also in the opening chapter tries to give you a preview of what to expect during the coming year. And, and we did the same thing, and what I'll best describe as a, uh, a reader's digest version in the uh, in the opening uh, in a separate uh, handout that all of you should have available for your review. But, but. You know, To answer your, your question specifically, uh, Elise, from my vantage point, the EOC really has been on steroids uh, for the past several months, and, and from talking to my friends in the EOC, they really are working overtime to get as much done as possible before the November election. So if you, you know, just to give you a few examples. Uh starting really as an example as of January 1 of 2016, the EOC had literally rolled out the digital charge processing system in all 53 EEOC offices after having various pilot programs throughout uh, the past year. In early January as well, they quietly Uh, posted guidelines on position statements which included reference to turning over such position statements to charging parties and after a number of us uh, literally sat down with the agency and some of their leaders uh, in late January uh, saying we, of course, were aware of this, and why was this not made public to everybody? Uh, they then issued a press release in on February 18th, saying, "Oh yeah, they, we now are announcing that we are going to be turning over position statements to uh, uh, to, um, to charging parties." Then again, in late January, January 21, the EOC issued their draft enforcement guidance on retaliation, and they now have to work their, their, their way through the comments, which and they, the comment pendant, uh, period ended on January, on February 24. Uh, and then, even still, in January, on January 29, the EOC issued the proposed revisions to the EO1 form uh, with a hearing scheduled on March 16th, comments due April 1, they'll of course be very busy going through that, and I know some of you on a prior call have listened to Elise give you a a preview and update on that. And then, uh, as Elise started off today's call, on March 1, the EOC literally filed two lawsuits challenging sexual orientation discrimination as sex discrimination. Uh, And I have no doubt that the commission, a particular high uh, Felblum, weighed in on these two suits. And then, of course, let's not forget the the wellness guidance posted or published on April 16th and October 29th, which, uh, which still needs to be finalized based on the extensive comments that were submitted. And, of course, who knows what else is in store for us. Uh, over the coming months but that gives you a more than a mouthful of, of a lots of stuff that's literally uh, come down uh, the pike uh, it literally in the first uh, couple months of the year
1: okay well thank you Varian. well I know our time is limited this morning based on what you just mentioned what stands out from your perspective as having the most immediate impact on employers you know
0: at least from my perspective on a day-to-day basis the new digital charge processing system is clearly the most dramatic change that I've actually seen the agency uh, deal with in in recent years and it truly is going to have a very immediate impact uh, because it really changes the way that employers and charging parties communicate with the EOC. Uh, they, there's an individual named Kathy Ventral-Montes who's legal counsel for the chair and and i've had lots of discussions with her on the the digital charge processing she literally uh led the charge under Jackie Berrien and continued it uh under under Jenny Wang and uh and and it's when she the way she put it to me uh some months ago we're really in phase 1 And phase one essentially has four basic components. It's the charge, which is essentially digitized, so to speak, or online, the opportunity for notice of mediation where where employers are given that option, the position statements, and then finally the dismissal with the notice of right to sue. And then I guess one additional item is providing contact information all electronically and that really is is phase one, and I would anticipate that uh, during this coming year, as we move to phase two, we're gonna see the more extensive interrogatories, requests for production that come down. Uh, They're gonna try to probably put that online as well and expand it. And I was, uh, I was out in Denver last week talking to one of the lead systemic investigators on a, on a substantial matter and certainly the perspective of the, those involved as lead systemic investigators and those handling systemic investigations is if they have their way, they really would prefer that all communications and submissions and systemic investigations done, be done through the digital charge processing. And, and I guess just at this outset, one final comment I'd make on this is the one aspect of the, of the new system that all employers really need to be sensitive to is the fact that the EOC's additional notice that they will be sharing employer position statements with charging parties.
1: Well, and turning to your last comment, do you have any recommendations for employers dealing with position statements? based on the fact that the EEOC will be sharing position statements with charging parties. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I would encourage you uh, taking a, take a look at the, um, the EOC's uh, press release where they I think it came out February 18th where they talked about uh, position statements being made available and so forth but from my vantage point since charging parties will have access I encourage employers to submit when they've got to do it electronically to submit the basic position statement but any confidential or proprietary information or certainly comparables uh, should, can, should and actually can be uploaded separately uh, I encourage employers to label it as confidential and not to be shared with the charging party Uh, Now, there, of course, is no guarantee that the AOC is going to agree with you and that all of it will be withheld. But if you don't separately upload what you consider to be proprietary information and other types of information, such as comparables and the related documentation, if you don't want that shared with the charging party, you're really going to be... left at the whim of the agency if you don't do it. Now supposedly they're going to go through the position statements uh, before they turn them over to the charging party but uh, I'm I'm a little more cynical when it comes down to thinking about the sheer volume of position statements so from an employer's perspective the agency has said employers can separately upload such documentation and I encourage you to do it.
1: Well and in and, and looking over liti- um, litigation trends Barry um, there appears to be a, a new normal, if you will, based upon a drastic reduction of the number of lawsuits previously filed by the EOC. How do you account for this, and what does this mean?
0: You know, we, we, we do lay this out in, in a lot more detail with a lot of the specifics in the annual report, but, you know, essentially, until 2011, the EOC was annually filing in excess of 250 lawsuits a year and in some cases substantially more than that. But over the past several years, and essentially since fiscal year 2012, there really has been a dramatic decrease in the number of lawsuits uh, filed by the agency. Um, And the new normal has been at least 100 fewer lawsuits a year than they were back in in earlier times. So for example, this past fiscal year, 142 lawsuits uh, were filed by the EOC. And from my vantage point, I attribute that decrease to the the number or, or, and then the EEOC's focus on systemic lawsuits. But I was I was in a um, in a meeting and, and subsequent uh, speaking engagement with the general counsel of the EOC a few weeks ago in New York, and he and I essentially had a one-on-one on annual developments at the EOC, and. Um, you know, aside from kidding me about the fact that he thinks our annual report, which we, you know, which we don't hide from the public, uh, well he wishes he had the time and resources to uh, to, div- to actually put together a report like that and and commended us, but at the same time took exception with a few of the things we said. But, but from his vantage point, he really attributes the decrease to, from what he says, the success of both mediation and conciliation at the agency and during our during our discussion he shared the fact that at least according to their statistics conciliation was successful in 44% of the charges uh compared to 35% for the uh, for the prior year and the success rate of in conciliation for systemic uh charges was 64% up 20% from the, from the prior year
1: and and turning to conciliation One of the most discussed cases over the past year is the Supreme Court's case in MAC mining and its impact on the conciliation process. What are your views on MAC mining and its impact?
0: You know, I know so many uh, of those of you out there in the the employer community have have heard so many people speak about MAC mining, and I'm not gonna go through the, uh, the facts in any great detail, But, you know, if I had to put it in uh, in essentially uh, a minute or less, my primary concern with MAC mining focuses on systemic charges. And the bottom line is that based on MAC mining and the Supreme Court's view that there will only be a bare bones review by the courts, there really is nothing preventing the EOC from making unreasonable settlement demands in the conciliation process. And this puts an employer between a rock and a hard place. Essentially having to choose between paying an unreasonable amount of conciliation or potentially multiple six or seven figures in the defense of such litigation. and. Look, from an employer's perspective, I will certainly say to you, I have had favorable results, and I've sent the right signals to the agency when the when an employer truly is committed to try to resolve these matters. But in the wrong case, if the EOC wants to make an example of a particular employer, there's nothing preventing them from essentially making an unreasonable demand, forcing litigation unless the employer pays multiples and millions, or ultimately a risk litigation in a matter.
1: And, and Barry, from your perspective, is there any pending EEOC litigation that deserves close attention by the employer community?
0: You know, clearly I will tell you that the EEOC has been more active in in the past year than than I've seen them in recent years, and, of course, we have two cases that they took up to the Supreme Court, so we don't really need to go through what's already happened in terms of talking about the the Abercrombie case or, or Mac mining that we just talked about. But one case that every employer should truly closely monitor is the EOC versus Bass Pro, which is actually pending in the Fifth Circuit, and at least a particular issue uh, of, on that case while it continues to go on in the lower courts is going on. And uh, essentially, that the decision in, in Bass Pro and the Fifth Circuit can truly have a dramatic impact on pattern of practice cases because the court Will be deciding whether or not compensatory and punitive damages are available in pattern of practice lawsuits by the O.C. Oral argument was heard in January, and a decision most likely is going to come down probably this uh, this summer and and, and potentially uh, potentially sooner. And this needs to be put in in context because in 2013, the Sixth Circuit actually permitted such damages in pattern of practice cases in the case of EEOC versus CINTAS. So, in short, if the, uh, the Fifth Circuit rules for the employer, this issue truly could be teed up for, for the Supreme Court. And, and of course, we don't have time to go into that case in any in great detail. But we do discuss it in the annual report and in the, uh, the summary we put together. So I encourage you to, to take a look, and, and certainly don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions.
1: Well, well Barry, we will all be eagerly awaiting the the Bass Pro decision, obviously, and, and as you've laid out, how important uh, it could be. And one final question I do have for you is uh, last week, on March 1st, the EEOC filed two lawsuits against private sector employers based on alleged sexual orientation. What can you share with us regarding this litigation? From my vantage
0: point and from looking over um, the the cases and certainly from my discussions at length, over, uh, over the past number of months with, uh, with my friends at the agency and discussion with them on this topic. The EEOC really is, is essentially taking a view and followed the relying on a doctrine of sexual stereotyping and taking a view that discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity involves sex discrimination. Uh, and in looking at the two lawsuits that were filed last week on March 1, and they're actually discussed in some detail in the, the March 1 press release on the EOC's website, so I would commend you to, to take a look at that. Uh, both of those, uh, both of the cases involve sexual orientation discrimination. And the first lawsuit, which was filed in the Western District of, of Pennsylvania, involves harassment of a, a gay male based on his sexual orientation. The second lawsuit filed in the federal district court in Maryland, with uh, certainly by regional attorney Deborah Lawrence, who has really been one of the most aggressive uh, regional attorneys uh, in certainly in the last couple of years, and that involves harassment of a female um, describing the complaint as a lesbian who was harassed based on her sexual orientation and appearance. And certainly, you know, from my vantage point, based on the law jam that we've got in Congress, it's clear that Title VII will not be amended in the immediate future to add prohibitions based on sexual identity or or, or sexual orientation. And, you know, and for that reason, DOC really is pushing the envelope, taking the view that such discriminatory conduct clearly falls within the definition of prohibited uh, sex discrimination under Title VII. And, and and look when i look at this area and i'm sure so many of you in the employer community recognize that as a best practice sex you know certainly discrimination based on sexual orientation and sexual you know sexual identity are the types of prohibitions that should be included in employer eeo policies the question is whether or not the oc should really be legislating in this area but regardless I think all employers should expect more lawsuits by the OC in this area during the coming year and we'll have to see how the courts uh, you know weigh in I mean we certainly have seen some cases dealing with a sexual identity uh, in this area uh, the, the federal sector cases that are handled by the agency there have been some very lengthy decisions in this in this area so uh, so I expect a lot more activity and uh, And and it's certainly something the employer community should be uh, closely looking at, monitoring, and ensuring they're updating their policies anyway in this area.
1: Um, Well, Barry, thank you so much for all this valuable insight on the EEOC. And, and giving employers uh, on the phone here an insight into what they can expect for the remainder of the year. Again, your your insights were um, were invaluable and we really appreciate you taking the time, Barry, um, to be our guest speaker today and also a thank you to everyone who, who called in. And again, this is Ivy Schumann um, thanking you for joining our Workplace Policy Institute monthly insider um, briefing call And stay tuned for information about next month's call. And, again, Barry, thank you, and good afternoon.
0: Thank you so much for including me, Alice. Thank you, everybody, and uh,
1: best wishes, and have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.